Hi, everybody. Carla here. Somehow I completely skipped over chapter 17 and I'm fixing that now. So you'll hear my intro on the second segment. In any case, let's get back into Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, chapter 17. Elizabeth related to Jane the next day what had passed between Mr. Wickham and herself. Jane listened with astonishment and concern. She knew not how to believe that Mr. Darcy could be so unworthy of Mr. Bingley's regard, and yet it was not in her nature to question the veracity of a young man of such amiable appearance as Wickham. The possibility of having his of his having endured such unkindness was enough to interest all her tender feelings, and nothing remained, therefore, to be done but to think well of them both, to defend the conduct of each, and throw into account of an accident or mistake whatever could not be otherwise explained. They both have, said she, been deceived, I dare say, in some way or other, of which we can form no idea. Interested people have perhaps misrepresented each to the other. And it is, in short, impossible for us to conjecture the causes or circumstances which may have alienated them without actual blame on either side. Very true indeed. And now, my dear Jane, what have you got to say on behalf of the interested people who have probably been concerned in the business? Do clear them too, or we shall be obliged to think ill of somebody. Laugh as much as you choose, but you will not laugh me out of my opinion. My dearest Lizzie, do but consider in what a disgraceful light it places Mr. Darcy to be treating his father's favorite in such a manner, one whom his father had promised to provide for. It is impossible. No man of common humanity, no man who had any value for his character could be capable of it. Can his most intimate friends be so excessively deceived in him? Oh, no. I can make much more easily believe Mr. Bingley's being imposed on than that Mr. Wickham should invent such a history of himself as he gave me last night. Names, facts, everything mentioned without ceremony. If it be not so, let Mr. Darcy contradict it. Besides, there was truth in his looks. It is difficult indeed. It is distressing. One does not know what to think. I beg your pardon. One knows exactly what to think. But Jane could think with certainty on only one point, that Mr. Bingley, if he had been imposed on, would have much to suffer when the affair became public. The two young ladies were summoned from the shrubbery, where this conversation passed, by the arrival of the very persons of whom they had been speaking. Mr. Bingley and his sisters came to give their personal invitation for the long-expected ball at Netherfield, which was fixed for the following Tuesday. The two ladies were delighted to see their dear friend again, called it an age since they had met, and repeatedly asked what she had been doing with herself since their separation. To the rest of the family, they paid little attention, avoiding Mrs. Bennet as much as possible, saying not much to Elizabeth and nothing at all to the others. They were soon gone again, rising from their seats with an activity which took their brother by surprise and hurrying off as if eager to escape from Mrs. Bennet's civilities. The prospect of the Netherfield Ball was extremely agreeable to every female of the family. Mrs. Bennet chose to consider it as given and compliment of her eldest daughter, and was particularly flattered by receiving the invitation from Mr. Bingley himself instead of a ceremonious card. Jane pictured to herself a happy evening in the society of her two friends and the attentions of her brother, and Elizabeth thought with pleasure of dancing a great deal with Mr. Wickham and of seeing a confirmation of everything in Mr. Darcy's look and behavior. 
the happiness anticipated by Catherine and Lydia depended less on any single event or any particular person for those, for though they each, like Elizabeth, meant to dance half the evening with Mr. Wickham, he was by no means the only partner who could satisfy them, and a ball was, at any rate, a ball. And even Mary could assure, could assure her family that she had no disinclination for it. While I can have my mornings to myself, said she, it is enough to think. It is enough, I think. It is no sacrifice to join occasionally in evening engagements. Society has claims on us all, and I profess myself one of those who consider intervals of recreation and amusement a desirable for everybody. Elizabeth's spirits were so high on this occasion that, though she did not often speak unnecessarily to Mr. Collins, she could not help asking him whether he intended to accept Mr. Bingley's invitation, and if he did, whether he would think it proper to join in the evening's amusement. And she was rather surprised to find that he entertained no scruple whatsoever on that head and was very far from dreading a rebuke either from the Archbishop or Lady Catherine of, of de Burrell by venturing to dance. I am by no means of the opinion, I assure you, he said, that a ball of this kind given by a young man of character to respectable people can have any evil tendency. And I am so far from objecting to dancing myself that I shall hope to be honored with the hands of all my fair cousins in the course of the evening. And I take this opportunity of soliciting yours, Miss Elizabeth, for the two first dances especially, a preference which I trust my cousin Jane will attribute to the right cause and not to any disrespect of her. Elizabeth, Elizabeth felt herself completely taken in. She had fully proposed being engaged by Mr. Wickham for those very dances and to have Mr. Collins instead. Her liveliness had never been worse timed. There was no help for it. However, Mr. Wickham's happiness and her own were perforce delayed a little longer and Mr. Collins' proposal accepted with as good a grace as she could. She was not the better pleased with his gallantry from the idea it suggested of something more. It now first struck her that she was selected from among her sisters as worthy of being mistress of Hunsford Parsonage and of assisting to form a quadrille table at Rosings in the absence of more eligible visitors. The idea soon reached to conviction as she observed his increasing civilities towards herself and heard his frequent attempt at a compliment on her wit and vivacity, and though more astonished than gratified herself by this effect of her charms, it was not long before her mother gave her to understand that the probability of their marriage was extremely agreeable to her. Elizabeth, however, did not choose to take the hint being well aware that a serious dispute must be the consequence of any reply. Mr. Collins might never make the offer. Until he did, it was useless to quarrel about him. If there had been, if there had not been another field ball to prepare for and talk of, the younger Miss Bennetts would have been in a very pitiable state at this time, for from the day of the invitation to the day of the ball, there was such a succession of rain as prevented their walking to Meryton once. No aunt, no officers, no news could be sought after. The very shoe roses for Netherfield were got by proxy. Even Elizabeth might have found some trial of her patience and weather which totally suspended the improvement of her acquaintance with Mr. Wickham, and nothing less than a dance on Tuesday could have made such a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday endurable to Kitty and Lydia. And that'll do it for chapter 17. Thanks so much for listening here at Carly Reads the Classics. Please pardon my reading flubs. 
It happens from time to time. I'm not a professional, but thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time. Hi, everybody. Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Let's continue, shall we, with Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, Chapter 18. Till Elizabeth entered the drawing room at Netherfield and looked in vain for Mr. Wickham among the cluster of red coats there assembled, a doubt of his being present had never occurred to her. The certainty of meeting him had not been checked by any of those recollections that might not unreasonably have alarmed her. She had dressed with more than usual care and prepared in the highest spirits for the conquest of all that remained unsubdued of his heart, trusting that it was not more than might be won in the course of the evening. But in an instant arose the dreadful suspicion of his being purposely omitted for Mr. Darcy's pleasure in the Bingley's invitation to the officers. And though this was not exactly the case, the absolute fact of his absence was pronounced by his friend Denny, to whom Lydia eagerly applied, and who told them that Wickham had been obliged to go to town on business the day before and was not yet returned adding with a significant smile, I do not imagine his business would have called him away just now if he had not wanted to avoid a certain gentleman here. This part of his intelligence, though unheard by Lydia, was caught by Elizabeth, and as it assured her that Darcy was not less answerable for Wickham's absence than if her first surmise had been just, every feeling of displeasure against the former was so sharpened by immediate disappointment that she could hardly reply with tolerable civility to the polite inquiries which she directly afterwards approached to make. Attendance, forbearance, patience with Darcy was injury to Wickham. She was resolved against any sort of conversation with him and turned away with a great deal of ill humor, which she could not wholly surmount even in speaking to Mr. Bingley, whose blind partiality provoked her. But Elizabeth was not for ill humor, and though every prospect of her own was destroyed for the evening, it could not dwell long on her spirits, and having told all her griefs to Charlotte Lucas, whom she had not seen for a week, she was soon able to make a voluntary transition to the oddities of her cousin, and to point him out to her particular notice. The first two dances, however, brought a return of distress. They were dances of mortification. Mr. Collins, awkward and solemn, apologizing instead of attending, and often moving wrong without being aware of it, gave her all the shame and misery which a disagreeable partner for a couple of dances can give. The moment of her release from him was ecstasy. She danced next with an officer and had the refreshment of talking of Wickham and of hearing that he was universally liked. When those dances were over, she returned to Charlotte Lucas and was in conversation with her when she found herself suddenly addressed by Mr. Darcy, who took her so much by surprise in his application for her hand that without knowing what she did, she accepted him. He walked away again immediately and she was left to fret over her own want of presence of mind. Charlotte tried to console her. I dare say you will find him very agreeable. Heaven forbid, that would be the greatest misfortune of all, to find a man agreeable whom one is determined to hate. Do not wish me such an evil. When the dancing recommenced, however, and Darcy approached to claim her hand, Charlotte could not help cautioning her in a whisper, not to be a simpleton and to allow her fancy for Wickham to make her appear unpleasant in the eyes of a man ten times his consequence. 
Elizabeth made no answer and took her place in the set, amazed at the dignity to which she was arrived in being allowed to stand opposite to Mr. Darcy and reading in her neighbor's looks their equal amazement and, and beholding it. They stood for some time without speaking a word, and she began to imagine that their silence was to last throughout the two dances, and at first was resolved not to break it, till suddenly, fancying that it would be the greater punishment to her partner to oblige him to talk, she made some slight observation of the dance. He replied and was again silent. After a pause of some minutes, she addressed him a second time with, "'It is your turn to say something now, Mr. Darcy. I talked about the dance, and you ought to make some sort of remark on the size of the room or the number of couples.' He smiled and assured her that whatever she wished him to say should be said. "'Very well. That reply will do for the present. Perhaps by and by I may observe that private balls are much pleasanter than public ones, but now we may be silent.' Do you talk by rule, then, while you are dancing? Sometimes. One must speak a little, you know. It would look odd to be entirely silent for half an hour together, and yet for the advantage of some, conversation ought to be so arranged as they may have the trouble of saying as little as possible. Are you consulting your own feelings in the present case, or do you imagine that you are gratifying mine? Both replied Elizabeth archly, for I have always seen a great similarity in the turn of our minds. We are each of an unsocial, taciturn disposition, unwilling to speak, unless we expect to say something that will amaze the whole room and be handed down to prosperity with all the eclat of a proverb. This was so very striking. This was no very striking resemblance of your own character, I am sure, he said. How near it may be to mine, I cannot pretend to say. You think it a faithful portrait, undoubtedly. I must not decide on my own performance. He made no answer, and again they were silent till they had gone down the dance, when he asked her if she and her sisters did not very often walk to Meryton. She answered in the affirmative, and unable to resist the temptation, added, When you met us the other day, we had just been forming a new acquaintance. The effect was immediate. A deeper shade of hauteur overspread his features, but he said not a word, and Elizabeth, though blaming herself for her own weakness, could not go on. At length Darcy spoke, and in a constrained manner said, Mr. Wickham is blessed with such happy manners as may ensure his making friends, whether he may be equally capable of retaining them is less certain. He has been so lucky he has been so unlucky as to lose your friendship replied Elizabeth with emphasis, and in a manner which he is likely to suffer from all his life. Darcy made no answer and seemed desirous of changing the subject. At that moment, Sir William Lucas approached close to them, meaning to pass through the set to the other side of the room. But on perceiving Mr. Darcy, he stopped with a bow of superior courtesy to compliment him on his dancing and his partner. I have been most highly gratified indeed, my dear sir. Such very superior dancing is not often seen. It is evident that you belong to the first circles. Allow me to say, however, that your fair partner does not disgrace you, and that I must hope to have this pleasure often repeated, especially when a certain desirable event, my dear Eliza, glancing at her sister in Bingley, shall take place. What congratulations will then flow in? I appeal to Mr. Darcy, but let me not interrupt you, sir. You will not thank me for detaining you from the bewitching converse of that young lady whose bright eyes are also abrading me. 
The latter part of this address was scarcely heard by Darcy, but Sir William's allusion to his friend seemed to strike him forcibly, and his eyes were directed with a very serious expression towards Bingley and Jane, who were dancing together. Recovering himself, however, shortly, he turned to his partner and said, Sir William's interruption has made me forget what we were talking of. I do not think we were speaking at all. Sir William could not have interrupted two people in the room who had less to say for themselves. We have tried two or three subjects already without success, and what we are to talk of next I cannot imagine. What think you of books? said he, smiling. Books? Oh, no, I am sure we never read the same or not with the same feelings. I am sorry you think so. But if that be the case, there can at least be no want of subject. We may compare our different opinions. No, I cannot talk of books in a ballroom. My head is always full of something else. The present always occupies you in such scenes, does it? Said he with a look of doubt. Yes, always, she replied, without knowing what she said, for her thoughts had wandered far from the subject, as soon afterwards appeared by her suddenly exclaiming, I remember hearing you once say, Mr. Darcy, that you hardly ever forgave, that you, that you resentment once created was unappeasable. You are very cautious, I suppose, as to its being created. I am, said he with a firm voice, and never allow yourself to be blinded by prejudice. I hope not. It is particularly incumbent on those who never change their opinion to be secure of judging properly at first. May I ask to what these questions tend? Merely to the illustration of your character, said she, endeavoring to shake off her gravity. I'm trying to make it out. And what is your success? She shook her head. I do not get on at all. I hear such different accounts of you as puzzle me exceedingly. I can readily believe, answered he gravely, that reports may vary greatly with respect to me, and I could wish, Miss Bennet, that you were not to sketch my character at the present moment, as there is reason to fear that the performance would reflect no credit on either. But if I do not take your likeness now, I may never have another opportunity. I would by no means suspend any pleasure of yours, he coldly replied. She said no more, and they went down the other dance and parted in silence and on each side dissatisfied, though not to an equal degree, for in Darcy's breast there was a tolerable powerful feeling towards her, which soon procured her pardon and directed all his anger against another. They had not long been separated when Miss Bingley came towards her, and with an expression of civil disdain accosted her. So, Miss Eliza, I hear you are quite delighted with George Wickham, your sister has been talking to me about him and asking me a thousand questions, and I find that the young man quite forgot to tell you, among his other communication, that he was the son of old Wickham, the late Mr. Darcy's steward. Let me recommend you, however, as a friend, not to give implicit confidence to all his assertions. For as to Mr. Darcy's using him ill, it is perfectly false. For on the contrary, he has always been remarkably kind to him, though George Wickham has treated Mr. Darcy in a most infamous manner. I do not know the particulars, but I know very well that Mr. Darcy is not in the least to blame, that he cannot bear to hear George Wickham mentioned, and that though my brother thought that he could not well avoid including him in this invitation to the officers, he was excessively glad to find that he had taken himself out of the way. His coming into the country at all is a most insolent thing indeed, and I wonder how he could presume to do it. I pity you, Miss Eliza, for this discovery of your favorite's guilt. But really, considering his descent, one could not expect much better. 
his guilt and his descent appear by your account to be the same, said Elizabeth angrily, for I have heard you accuse him of nothing worse than of being the son of Mr. Darcy Stewart, and of that, I can assure you, he informed me himself. I beg your pardon, replied Miss Bingley, turning away with a sneer. Excuse my interference, it was kindly meant. Insolent girl, said Elizabeth to herself, you are much mistaken if you expect to influence me by such a paltry attack as this. I see nothing in it but your willful, willful ignorance and the malice of Mr. Darcy. She then sought her eldest sister, who has undertaken to make inquiries on the same subject of Bingley. Jane met her with the smile of such sweet complacency, a glow of such happiness, as sufficiently marked how well and sufficiently marked how well she was satisfied with the occurrences of the evening. Elizabeth instantly read her feelings, and at that moment solicitude for Wickham, resentment against his enemies, and everything else gave way before the hope of Jane's being in the fairest way for happiness. I want to know, said she, with a countenance no less smiling than her sister's, what you have learned about Mr. Wickham but perhaps you have been too pleasantly engaged to think of any third person, in which case you may be sure of my pardon. No, replied Jane, I have not forgotten him, but I have nothing satisfactory to tell you. Mr. Bingley does not know the whole of his story and is quite ignorant of the circumstances which have principally offended Mr. Darcy, but he will vouch for the good conduct, his probity, and honor of his friend, and is perfectly convinced that Mr. Wickham has deserved much less attention from Mr. Darcy than he has received, and I am sorry to say by his account, as well as his sister's, Mr. Wickham is by no means a respectable young man. I am afraid he has been very imprudent and has deserved to lose Mr. Darcy's regard. Mr. Bingley does not know Mr. Wickham himself? No, he never saw him till the other morning at Meryton. This account, then, is what he has received from Mr. Darcy. I am satisfied. But what does he say of the living? He does not exactly recollect the circumstances, though he has heard them from Mr. Darcy more than once, but he believes that if it was less left to himself conditionally only. I have not a doubt of Mr. Bingley's sincerity, said Elizabeth warmly, but you must excuse my not being convinced by assurances only. Mr. Bingley's defense of his friend was a very able one, I dare say, but since he is unacquainted with several parts of the story and has learned the rest from his friend himself, I shall venture to still think of both gentlemen as I did before. She then changed the discourse to one more gratifying to each, and on which there could be no difference of sentiment. Elizabeth listened with delight to the happy, though modest, hopes which Jane entertained of Mr. Bingley's regard, and said all in her power to heighten her confidence in it. On their being joined by Mr. Bingley himself, Elizabeth withdrew to Miss Lucas, to whose inquiry after the pleasantness of her last partner she had scarcely replied before Mr. Collins came up to them and told her with great exultation that he had just been so fortunate as to make a most important discovery. I have found out, said he, by a singular accident, that there is now in the room a near relation of my patroness. I happened to overhear the gentleman himself mentioning to the young lady who does the honors of the house the names of his cousin, Miss Deborah, and of her mother, Lady Catherine. How wonderfully these sort of things occur! Who would have thought of my meeting with perhaps a nephew of Lady Catherine de Burrow in this assembly. I am most thankful that the discovery is made in time for me to pay my respects to him, which I am now going to do, and trust he will excuse my not having it done before. My total ignorance on the connection must plead my apology. 
you are not going to introduce yourself to Mr. Darcy. Indeed I am. I shall entreat his pardon for not having done it earlier. I believe him to be Lady Catherine's nephew. It will be in my power to assure him that her ladyship was quite well yesterday, tonight. Elizabeth tried hard to dissuade him from such a scheme, assuring him that Mr. Darcy would consider his addressing him without introduction as an impertinent freedom, rather than a compliment to his aunt, that it was not in the least necessary there should be any notice on either side, and that if it were, it must belong to Mr. Darcy, the superior in consequence, to begin the acquaintance. Mr. Collins listened to her with the determined air of his own inclination, and when she ceased speaking, replied thus, My dear Miss Elizabeth, I have the highest opinion in the world in your excellent judgment in all matters within the scope of your understanding. But permit me to say that there must be a wide difference between the established forms of ceremony amongst the laity and those which regulate the clergy, for give me leave to observe that I consider the clerical office as equal in point of dignity with the highest rank in the kingdom, provided that a proper humility of behavior is at the same time maintained. You must therefore allow me to follow the dictates of my conscience on this occasion, which leads me to perform what I look on as a point of duty. Pardon me for neglecting to profit by your advice, which on every other subject shall be my constant guide, though in the case before us, I consider myself more fitted by education and habitual study to decide on what is right than a young lady like yourself. And with a low bow, he left her to attack Mr. Darcy, whose reception of his advances she eagerly watched, and whose astonishment at being so addressed was very evident. Her cousin prefaced his speech with a solemn bow, and though she could not hear a word of it, she felt as if hearing it all, and saw in the motion and saw in the motion of his lips the words apology, Hunsford, and Lady Catherine de Burrell. It vexed her to see him expose himself to such a man. Mr. Darcy was eyeing him with unrestrained wonder, and when at last Mr. Collins allowed him time to speak, he replied with an air of distant civility. Mr. Collins, however, was not discouraged from speaking again, and Mr. Darcy's contempt seemed abundantly increasing with the length of the second speech, and at the end of it, he only made him a slight bow and moved another way. Mr. Collins then returned to Elizabeth. I have no reason, I assure you, said he, to be dissatisfied with my reception. Mr. Darcy seemed much pleased with the attention. He answered me with the utmost civility and even paid me the compliment of saying that he was so well convinced of Lady Catherine's discernment as to be certain she should never bestow she, she would never bestow a favor unworthily. It was really a very handsome thought. Upon the whole, I am much pleased with him. As Elizabeth had no longer any interest of her, of her own to pursue, she turned her attention almost entirely on her sister and Mr. Bingley, and the train of, agree of agreeable reflections which her observations gave birth to made her perhaps almost as happy as Jane. She saw her in idea settled in that very house, and all the felicity which a marriage of true affection could bestow, and she felt capable, under such circumstances, of endeavoring even to like Bingley's two sisters. Her mother's thoughts she plainly saw were bent the same way, and she determined not to venture near her, lest she might hear too much. 
When they sat down to supper, therefore, she considered it a most unlucky perverseness which placed them within one of each other, and deeply she was vexed to find that her mother was talking to that one person, Lady Lucas, frequently, openly, and of nothing else but her expectation that Jane would soon be married to Mr. Bingley. It was an animating subject, and Mrs. Bennet seemed incapable of fatigue while enumerating the advantages of the match. His being such a charming young man, and so rich, and living but three miles from them, were the first points of self-gratulation, and then it was such a comfort to think of how fond the two sisters were of Jane, and to be certain that they must desire the connection as much as she could do. It was, moreover, such a promising thing for her younger daughters, as Jane marrying so greatly must throw them in the way of other rich men, and lastly, it was so pleasant at her time of life to be able to consign her single daughters to the care of their sister, that she may not be obliged to go in company more than she liked. It was necessary to make this circumstance a matter of pleasure, because on such occasions it is the etiquette, but no one was less likely than Mrs. Bennet to find comfort in staying home at any period of her life. She concluded with many good wishes that Lady Lucas might soon be equally fortunate, though evidently and triumphantly believing there was no chance of it. In vain did Elizabeth endeavor to check the rapidity of her mother's words, or persuade her to describe her felicity in a less audible whisper, for, to her inexpressible vexation, she could perceive that the chief of it was overheard by Mr. Darcy, who sat opposite to them. Her mother only scolded her for being nonsensical. "'What is Mr. Darcy to me? Pray that I should be afraid of him.' I am sure we owe him no such particular civility as to be obliged to say nothing he may not like to hear. For heaven's sake, madam, speak lower. What advantage can it be for you to offend Mr. Darcy? You will never recommend yourself to his friend by doing so. Nothing that she could say, however, had any influence. Her mother would talk of her views in the same intelligible tone. Elizabeth blushed and blushed again with shame and vexation. She could not help the frequent she could not help frequently glancing her eye at Mr. Darcy, though every glance convinced her of what she dreaded. For though he was not always looking at her mother, she was convinced that his attention was invariably fixed by her. The expression of his face changed gradually from indignant contempt to a composed and steady gravity. At length, however, Mrs. Bennet had no more to say, and Lady Lucas, who had been long yawning at the repetition of delights which she saw no likelihood of sharing, was left to the comforts of cold ham and chicken. Elizabeth now began to revive, but not long was the interval of tranquility, for when supper was over, singing was talked of, and she had the mortification of seeing Mary, after very little entreaty, preparing to oblige the company. By many significant looks and silent entreaties did she endeavor to prevent such a proof of complacence, but in vain. Mary would not understand them. Such an opportunity of exhibiting was delightful to her, and she began her song. Elizabeth's eyes were fixed on her with most painful sensations as she watched her progress through several stanzas with an impatience which was very ill re rewarded at their close. For Mary, on receiving amongst the thanks of the table, the hint of a hope that she might pre be prevailed on to favor them again after the pause of half a minute began another. Mary's powers were by no means fitted for such a display. Her voice was weak and her manner affected. Elizabeth was in agonies. She looked at Jane to see how she bore it, but Jane was very composedly talking to Bingley. 
she looked at his two sisters and saw them making signs of derision at each other and at Darcy, who continued, however, imperturbably grave. She looked at her father to entreat his interference, lest Mary should be singing all night. He took the hint, and when Mary had finished her second song, said aloud, That will do extremely well, child. You have delighted us long enough. Let the other young ladies have time to exhibit. Mary, though pretending not to hear, was somewhat disconcerted, and Elizabeth, sorry for her and sorry for her father's speech, was afraid her anxiety had done her no good. Others of the party were now applied to. If I, said Mr. Collins, were so fortunate as to be able to sing, I should have great pleasure, I am sure, in obliging the company with an air, for I consider music as a very innocent diversion and perfectly compatible with the profession of a clergyman. I do not mean, however, to assert that we can be justified in devoting too much of our time to music, for there are certainly other things to be attended to. The rector of a parish has much to do. In the first place, he must make such an agreement for tithes as a may be beneficial to himself and not offensive to his patron. He must write his own sermons, and at the time that remains, he will be too much for his parish. He will not be too much for his parish duties and the care and improvement of his dwelling, which he cannot be excused from making as a comfort from making as comfortable as possible. And I do not think it light of, of light importance that he should have attentive and conciliatory manner towards everybody, especially towards those to whom he owes his preferment. I cannot acquit him of that duty, nor could I think well of the man who should omit an occasion of testifying his respect towards anybody connected with the family. And with a bow to Mr. Darcy, he concluded his speech, which had been spoken so loud as to be heard by half the room. Many stared, many smiled, but no one looked more amused than Mr. Bennet himself, while his wife seriously commended Mr. Collins for having spoken so sensibly and observed in a half-whisper to Lady Lucas that he was a remarkable, clever, good kind of man. To Elizabeth, it appeared that had her family made an agreement to expose themselves as, a, as much as they had during the evening, it would have been impossible for them to play their parts with more spirit or finer success. And, and happy did she think it for Bingley and her sister that some of the exhibition had escaped his notice and that his feelings were not of a sort to be much distressed by the folly which he must have witnessed. That his two sisters and Mr. Darcy, however, should have such an opportunity of ridiculing her relations was bad enough, and she could not determine whether the silent contempt of the gentlemen or the insolent smiles of the ladies were more intolerable. The rest of the evening brought her little amusement. She was teased by Mr. Collins, who continued most perseveringly by her side, and though he could not prevail on her to dance with him again, put it out of her power to dance with others. In vain did she entreat him to stand up with somebody else and offer to introduce him to any young lady in the room. He assured her that as to dancing, he was perfectly indifferent to it, that his chief object was by delicate attentions to recommend himself to her, and that he should therefore make a point of remaining close to her the whole evening. There was no arguing upon such a project. She owed her greatest relief to her friend, Miss Lucas, who often joined them and good-naturedly engaged Mr. Collins in conversation to herself. She was at least free from the offense of Mr. Darcy's further notice, though often standing within a short distance of her, quite disengaged, he never came near enough to speak. She felt it to be the probable consequence of her allusions to Mr. Wickham and rejoiced in it. The Longbourn party were the last of all 
company to depart, and by a maneuver of Mrs. Bennet had to wait for their carriage a quarter of an hour after everybody else was gone, which gave them time to see how heartily they were wished away by some of the family. Mrs. Hurst and her sister scarcely opened their mouths, except to complain of fatigue, and were evidently impatient to have the house to themselves. They repulsed every attempt of Mrs. Bennet at conversation, and by so doing threw a languor over the whole party, which was very little relieved by the long speeches of Mr. Collins, who was complimenting Mr. Bingley and his sisters on the elegance of their entertainment, and the hospitality and politeness which had marked their behavior to their guests. Darcy said nothing at all. Mr. Bennet, in equal silence, was enjoying the scene. Mr. Bingley and Jane were standing together, a little detached from the rest, and talked only to each other. Elizabeth preserved as steady a silence as either Mrs. Hurst or Miss Bingley, and even Lydia was too much fatigued to utter more than the occasional excla ex exclamation of, Lord, how tired I am, accompanied by a violent yawn. When at length they arose to take leave, Mrs. Bennet was not pressingly civil in her hope of seeing the whole family soon at Longbourn, and addressed herself especially to Mr. Bingley to assure him how happy he would make them by eating a family dinner with them at any time without the ceremony of a formal invitation. Bingley was all grateful pleasure, and he readily engaged for taking the earliest opportunity of waiting on her after his return from London, whither he was obliged to go the next day for a short time. Mrs. Bennet was perfectly satisfied and quitted the house under the delightful persuasion that, allowing for the necessary preparations of settlements, new carriages, and wedding clothes, she should undoubtedly see her daughter settled at Netherford in the course of three or four months. Of having another daughter married to Mr. Collins, she thought with equal certainty and with considerable though not equal pleasure. Elizabeth was the least dear to her of all her children, and though the man and the match were quite good enough for her, the worth of each was eclipsed by Mr. Bingley and Netherfield. Chapter 19 The next day opened a new scene at Longbourn. Mr. Collins made a declaration in form. Having resolved to do it without loss of time, as his leave of absence extended only to the following Saturday, and having no feelings of diffidence to making it distressing to himself even at the moment, he set about it in a very orderly manner, with all the observances which he supposed a regular part of the business. On finding Mrs. Bennet, Elizabeth, and one of the younger girls together, soon after breakfast, he addressed the mother in these words. "'May I hope, madam, for your interest with your fair daughter Elizabeth "'when I solicit for the honor of a private audience with her "'in the course of this morning?' "'Before Elizabeth had time for anything but a blush of surprise, "'Mrs. Bennet answered instantly, "'Oh, dear, yes, certainly. "'I am sure Lizzie will be very happy. "'I am sure she can have no objection. "'Come, Kitty, I want you upstairs.' "'And gathering her work together, she was hastening away, when Elizabeth called out, "'Dear madame, do not go. I beg you will not go. Mr. Collins must, must excuse me. He can have nothing to say to me that anybody need not hear. I am going away myself.' "'No, no nonsense, Lizzie. I desire you to stay where you are.' And upon Elizabeth's seeming really with vexed and embarrassed looks about to escape, she added, "'Lizzie, I insist upon your staying and hearing Mr. Collins.' 
Elizabeth would not oppose such an injunction and a moment's consideration making her also sensible that it would be wisest to get it over as soon as quiet as soon and quietly as possible, she sat down again and tried to conceal by incessant employment of the feelings which were divided between distress and diversion. Mrs. Bennet and Kitty walked off, and as soon as they were gone, Mr. Collins began. Believe me, my dear Elizabeth, that your modesty, so far from doing you any disservice, rather adds to your other perfections. You would have been less amiable in my eyes had there not been this little unwillingness, but allow me to assure you that I have your respected mother's permission for this address. You can hardly doubt the purport of my discourse, however your natural delicacy may lead you to disassemble. My intentions have been too marked to be mistaken. Almost as soon as I entered the house, I singled you out as the companion of my future life. But before I am run away with by my feelings on this subject, perhaps it would be advisable for me to state my reasons for marrying, and moreover, for coming to Hertfordshire with the design of selecting a wife, as I certainly did. The idea of Mr. Collins, with all his solemn composure, being run away with his feelings made Elizabeth so near laughing that she could not use the short pause he allowed in an attempt to stop him further, and he continued, My reasons for marrying are, first, that I think it is a right thing for every clergyman in easy circumstances like myself to set the example of matrimony to his parish. Secondly, that I am convinced that it, convinced that it will add very greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, which perhaps I ought to have mentioned earlier, that it is the particular advice and recommendation of the very noble lady whom I have the honor of calling patroness. Twice has she condescended to give me her opinion, unmasked too, unasked too, on this subject. And it was but the very Saturday before I left Hunsford between our pools at Quadrille while Mrs. Jenkinson was arranging Mr. Burrell's footstool that she said, Mr. Collins, you must marry. A clergyman like you must marry. Choose properly. Choose a gentlewoman for my sakes and for your own. Let her be an active, useful sort of person, not brought up high, but able to make a small income go a good way. This is my advice. Find such a woman as soon as you can. Bring her to Hunsford and I will visit her. Allow me, by the way, to observe, my fair cousin, that I do not reckon the notice and kindness of Lady Catherine de Burrell as among the least of the advantages in my power to offer. You will find her manners beyond anything I can describe, and your wit and vivacity, I think, must be acceptable to her, especially when tempered with the silence and respect which her rank will inevitably excite. Thus much for my general intention in favor of matrimony, it, it remains to be told why my views were directed towards Longbourn instead of my own neighborhood, where I can assure you there are many amiable young women. But the fact is that being as I am to inherit this estate after the death of your honored father, who, however, may live years longer, I could not satisfy myself without resolving to choose a wife from among his daughters, that the loss to them might be as little as possible when the melancholy event takes place, which, however, as I have already said, may not be for several years. This has been my motive, my fair cousin, and I flatter myself. It will not sink me in your esteem." And now nothing remains but for me to assure you in the most animated language of the violence of my affection. 
to fortune I am perfectly indifferent and shall make no demand of that nature on your father, since I am well aware that it could not be complied with, and that one thousand pounds and the four percent, which will not be yours till after your mother's decease, is all that you may ever be entitled to. On that head, therefore, I shall be uniformly silent, and you may assure yourself that no ungenerous reproach shall ever pass my lips when we are married. It was obviously, it was absolutely necessary to interrupt her now. You are too hasty, sir, she cried. You forget that I have made no answer. Let me do it without further loss of time. Accept my thanks for the compliment you are paying me. I am very sensible to the honor of your proposals, but it is impossible for me to do otherwise than to decline them. I am not now to learn, replied Mr. Collins with a formal wave of hand, that it is usual with young ladies to reject the addresses of a man whom they secretly mean to accept when he first applies for their favor, and that sometimes the refusal is repeated a second or even a third time. I am therefore by no means discouraged by what you have just said, and shall hope to lead you to the altar ere long. Upon my word, cried Elizabeth. Your hope is a rather extraordinary one after my declaration. I assure you that I am not one of those young ladies, if such young ladies there are, who are so daring as to risk their happiness on the chance of being asked a second time. I am perfectly serious in my refusal. You could not make me happy, and I am convinced that I am the last woman in the world who could make you happy. So, nay, were you friend Lady Catherine to were your friend Lady Catherine to know me, I am persuaded she would find me in every respect ill qualified for the situation. Were it certain that Lady Catherine would think so, said Mr. Collins very gravely, but I cannot imagine that her ladyship would at all disprove of you. And you may be certain when I have the honor of seeing her again, I shall speak in the very highest terms of your modesty, economy, and other amiable qualification. Indeed, Mr. Collins, all praise of me will be unnecessary. You must give me leave to judge for myself and pay me the compliment of believing what I say. I wish you very happy and very rich, and by refusing you by refusing your hand, do in all my power to prevent your being otherwise. In making me the offer, you must have satisfied the delicacy of your feelings with regard to my family, and may take possession of Longbourn Estate whenever it whenever it falls. Without any self-reproach, this matter may be considered, therefore, as finally settled. And rising, as she thus spoke, she would have quitted the room had Mr. Collins not thus addressed her. When I do myself the honor of speaking to you next on the subject, I shall hope to receive a more favorable answer than you have given me, though I am far from accusing you of cruelty at present, because I know it to be the established custom of your sex to reject a man on the first application, and perhaps you have even now said as much to encourage my suit as would be consistent with the true delicacy of the female character. Really, Mr. Collins, cried Elizabeth with some warmth, you puzzle me exceedingly. If what I have hitherto said can appear to you in the form of encouragement, I know not how to express my refusal in such a way as to conceive you of its being one. You must give me leave to flatter myself, my dear cousin, that your refusal of my address is merely words, of course. My reasons for believing it are briefly these. It does not appear to me that my hand is unworthy of your acceptance or that the establishment I can offer would be any other than highly desirable. My situation in life, my connections with the family of de Burl, and my relationship to your own are circumstances highly in my favor, and you should take it into further consideration that, in spite of your manifold attractions, it is by no means certain that another offer or marriage may ever be made to you. 
your portion is unhappily so small that it will in all likelihood undo the effects of your loveliness and amiable qualifications. As I must therefore conclude that you are not serious in your rejection of me, I shall choose to attribute it to your wish of increasing my love by suspense, according to the usual practice of elegant females." I do assure you, sir, that I have no pretensions whatever to that kind of elegance which consists in tormenting a respectable man. I would rather be, I would rather be paid the compliment of being believed sincere. I thank you again and again for the honor you have done me in your proposals, but to accept them is absolutely impossible. My feelings in every respect forbid it. Can I speak plainer? Do not consider me now as an elegant female intending to plague you, but as a rational creature speaking the truth from her heart. You are uniformly charming, cried he with an air of awkward gallantry, and I am persuaded that when sanctioned by the express authority of both your excellent parents, my proposals will not fail of being acceptable. To such perseverance and Willful self-deception, Elizabeth could make no reply, and immediately and in silence withdrew, determined if he persisted in considering her repeated refusals as flattering encouragement to apply to her father, whose negative might be uttered in such a manner as to be decisive, and whose behavior at least could not be mistaken for the affectation and coquetry of an elegant female." And that brings us to the end of chapter 19 of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. I ask you to please forgive my reading flubs in these two chapters. And I hope that you were able to enjoy the chapters notwithstanding. In any event, thank you so much for listening. If you have questions, comments, or if you'd like to make a suggestion, please write to me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. Or you may reply to the Q&A section of the episode description. Thanks again, thanks again for listening. Until next time.